that I'm the associate curator here at the Hirschhorn and the um, organizer of the exhibition in which you are standing. I'm just going to say a couple of introductory remarks and then I'm going to hand it over to Evan Holloway, who's standing to my right, one of the artists in the exhibition. Evan's work is included in the exhibition, The Uncertainty of Objects and Ideas, and he's also one of three artists in the exhibition that I invited to make a collection show. So he has a gallery that we're going to spend a good deal of time with today that are works that he selected from our collection and installed. And so he's now officially a curator as well, as an artist. Um, I wanted to point out that next Friday, which is November 3rd, we'll be doing another lunchtime talk with one of the artists in the exhibition, Andrea Cohen, who's based in Brooklyn, and so she'll be back at the Hirshhorn for that. Please join us for that at 12.30. And also tonight, if you're feeling really ambitious and you want to spend your entire day at the Hirshhorn, we have a panel discussion at 7 o'clock with four of the artists in the exhibition, Franz West, Rachel Harrison, Charles Long, and Mark Handforth, and I will be moderating that panel discussion with the other contributor to the catalog, Johanna Bird, who's an art historian. I think that'll be a really interesting and lively discussion, so please join us if you can. Um, the Uncertainty of Objects and Ideas, for those of you who haven't seen it yet, it only opened last night. It's a show of recent sculpture, all dating from about 2000 forward, by nine international artists of different generations. As you'll see as you go through the exhibition, hopefully later today, these are all discrete objects in space that are made of a number of different materials and I think have a lot to say about sculpture, the history of sculpture, and also the contemporary world in which we live. So I'm actually just going to leave it at that and I'm going to let Evan take over from here. So thank you, Evan. Oh, thank you very much, Anne. Um, I guess we should move, should we move over to the objects to be discussed, which are. We're going to start in Evan's gallery. part is the older part, and the uh, skinny part is the new part. 
So a tree is sort of a map of itself in time, and it has a directionality, and that's something that as human beings who live, you know, on the planet Earth, we, we know that, uh, you know, very well, we don't even think about it. So I've overlaid that sort of, in, you know, already known information um, with the uh, grayscale, which goes from black to white, and so it's a way of sort of uh, reiterating that directionality. Um, you know, at the same time, I'm very interested in this as a formal sculptural object. Um, one of the ways I like to discuss things right now is, it's, I, you know, I don't really believe that art objects have any inherent meaning on their own that comes from, you know, some great source. I really believe that, you know, art objects come, the meaning in art objects is generated by people, by the culture around the objects, and by the people looking at them. So in this sense, it's really, you know, the fact that you know something about trees, you came here with that information, and that informs the sculpture. Um, similarly, uh, you know, with a piece like 10 through 19 back there, uh, which uses these very crudely rendered bases, you know, there's something about the way, um, you know, we are made to, uh, you know, recognize faces, the, the way something in our brains that uh, recognizes faces, and this, you know, makes the sculpture entertaining. <laughs> it also, uh, we have a tendency to project uh, maybe emotion or uh, you know, we form a relationship with these crude little blobs of, uh, of um, paper mache just because of the fact that they have a couple of dots being on them. Also, you know, this is about, uh, or <clears throat> not entirely about, but one of the things that was beginning to develop with this is this idea of, uh, idea of uh, sequence uh, and uh, making sequential uh, work. So this is actually the second in, in, a, in a series. Uh, I did zero through nine, and this is 10 through 19. Um, the number 10 has 10 faces on it, 11 has 11, etc. cetera. Uh, so I imagine by the time I get up to you know, 67, it's going to be quite a complicated object. Uh, I guess, so there's something about the way the rules uh, help define uh, the uh, formal look of the object, similar to the way that I followed some rules to make um, this piece, uh, the grayscale, that I've just discussed. Um, let's see. The, uh, this is called uh, the non-alchemical transmutation model, and basically it's a... Is my mic on? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, what, what I've, it's a bit complicated, but there's, a, uh, there's sort of two Mobius loops that run side by side on this donut. And, um, they, the rods follow them in sequence, so they go actually red, orange, yellow, and it's, it's actually quite ordered. And that order is, it's a little hard to see down here, but there's, it's, it's re-articulated down here. Here's a grayscale, black to white. Here's the, um, you know, the color wheel uh, from, and here it runs from magenta to vermilion. Um, and so the, the, that goes up to the donut, which is then, and then they're put in order on the donut, and then the, um, you know, then, then the ropes are tied, and, and it becomes another sort of uh, an arrangement. So there's sort of three versions of arranging the same uh, information. Uh, people ask me why I use uh, the color scale, uh, or the, the grayscale, the color wheel, and um, it actually began with the um, piece back here as that. Uh, way of re-emphasizing directionality. Um, and similarly with the uh, color wheel, it also has an order and a sequence, but rather than having a beginning and end, you know, it, it, it's a cycle. Uh, so when you see me using that, it's usually to um, 
overlay, so there's a formal information piece, just its shape, and, you know, with a, with another kind of, with a color coding that contributes to its directionality. Um, let's see. Back, well, no, I guess, uh, over here, this is called Abraham and Son. Um, this is uh, my depiction of the biblical story of Abraham and his son. Uh, this is uh, the, the sort of bifurcation between um, Islam and Judaism is at this point, uh, because while you know both religions uh, point back to this story, there's a disagreement over which son, you know, it's, uh, in Islam it's Ishmael. In Judaism, it's Isaac. So uh, this is, you know, a, a quite important uh, moment in terms of the history of monotheism. Uh, I had a lot of reasons for making this, and uh, it continues to be an interesting piece for me to think about and discuss with people. Uh, and uh, I, as a, um, I, I guess, as a story, as an iconic story, I, I find it's. Uh, <coughs> It, it just uh, it, it keeps uh, giving me things to think about. <laughs> um, this um, this piece over here, briefly before we run into my my favorite room, the collection room. Um, I uh, ride a bicycle in Los Angeles, uh, which is not as crazy as it seems. Uh, and um, well, actually, I find a lot of batteries in the street, and I, I started picking them up, and one of the reasons I started picking up is because I, I actually had a lot of old batteries in my house, too, because, um, you know, you're not really supposed to throw them in the garbage because they contain mercury, and, um, but I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with them. Uh, the hazmat truck rolls around like once a year, and I never managed to hook up with it, so I have bags and bags of old batteries, and they, I realized that, like, they were not only, like, little symbols of sort of my guilt about the impact I have on the environment, they literally are the object that you know they, that I feel guilty about. They, so you know they have a real personal meaning for me in terms of thinking about you know my environmental uh, footprint um, and uh, you know what it means to live in the contemporary world and be aware of that. You know certainly throughout human history, human beings have always impacted their environments and, and left garbage. Uh, it's only in recent history that uh, it's a cause for daily anxiety. Uh, so. Uh, the funny thing about this too for me is that like it's got the cord and you can follow that cord all the way back to somewhere where the power is being generated. So, you know, there's actually live power and then there's a dead power object. So there's a little bit of a duality here between, you know, life and death and uh, male and female. But now, to really get to the fun stuff, let's go into this. Well, I, uh... One of my favorite things to do is to uh, scrounge around in old bookstores and uh, dig up uh, art catalogs and uh, and uh, books from the uh, you know recent past because I'm always interested in um, well in, in 20th century art history and uh, you know often I find really great works and I know that they're in collections somewhere and uh, sometimes it says whose collection they're in. Sometimes is the Hirschhorn collection, and uh, and, I, and I, I ask myself, you know, where are these objects? How, how can I see them? They must be really, you know, really interesting, and um, so it was a great opportunity to actually have, the, to be able to go into the collection here at the Hirschhorn and uh, pull these things out. 
this, uh, you know, I guess one of the things that, that concerns me uh, as an artist and as somebody sort of raised in the, in the postmodern era is that um, I thought that we were supposed to disrupt uh, the canon and uh, have uh, questions about uh, what m mechanisms of power propelled certain artists to great fame and left others behind. Um, and I think as we've seen in quite recent art history, um, we've just got a continued canon and we haven't really opened things up as much as um, was promised. And that's too bad because I think that um, when you take artwork away from being a um, propeller of uh, fame and uh, uh, an art marketplace, you can really look at the objects and at, you know, as they were intended as, and have the experience that the artist intended you to have instead of you know, running immediately to the name tag and, and identifying it. Um, so, uh, I, um, for, for instance, like this, uh, how I found some of these objects. Mary Bauermeister is an artist I did not know much about when I began my research. Uh, I found a reproduction in, of uh, this piece here uh, in the uh, 1974. Uh, Abrams published a big book of the Hirschhorn collection, and there's a small black and white reproduction of this piece, which I was really intrigued by. It's not the best reproduction, but um, I thought, I mean, you know, when, it, when I came to visit to, to sort of look at things, I saw this piece and then I, I insisted on seeing every other Mary Bauermeister piece because I found them so uh, compelling. Uh, one of the things that's so compelling about these works is the way that she, as she's making them, she's referencing the fact that she's making them and then she starts, you know, by literally making notations about, you know, uh, how long it took her to draw one section and. Uh, or she will uh, put a lens on top of a drawing and then make a drawing of what she sees through the lens. So these things are constantly sort of turning in on themselves and uh, sort of exploring a kind of inner space that's, you know, very personal to Mary Bauermeister as she made these works, but also, you know, it's a physical sort of inner space because, you know, how many layers can you find inside of one of these things? Uh, it's astonishing. Uh, so, uh, th that's quite interesting to me. Uh, I guess I would relate that in some ways to, um, you know, my incorporation of the personal through the batteries. Uh, you know, a couple of the feminist artists in this show, like Ree Morton, uh, that drawing back there is a, is a drawing of, uh, it's from the series called uh, Game Drawings, uh, which she was making based on some of the games that her children were playing and the way that they would organize space in those games. So that's sort of a, a you know, Ree Morton's one of my favorite artists for the way that she um, she uh, was able to, you know, mingle sort of the highly personal uh, with, uh, you know, a sculptural practice that I find really compelling. I, unfortunately, I wasn't able to put a sculpture out of, of hers, but, but I really like the drawing. Um, while uh, there's still time, people are having to run off, I would really love to take this piece apart. Uh, and um, this is by... Paul Wunderlich, uh, who is, uh, you know, German uh, and um, made a lot of uh, prints and uh, also uh, um, multiples of sculptural objects. This one, can we take it apart? Yeah, this this has a variable. This can be displayed in various ways, and um, I wanted to make sure that somebody got a chance to see all the sort of different uh, ways it, it looks. Uh, yeah, that's great. Does this piece come on? Yeah. yeah.
I actually, I found a photograph of this. At one point, it was displayed, um, you know, taken apart like this. I think maybe when he showed uh, first showed this edition, he had it out in in several forms. And then, can we take the yeah? This this actually opens and closes this this ball. And uh, can we lift it up there? And it's sort of held in place by this little phallus, which uh, is also removable. So, uh, you know, what can I say about this object? It's really compelling. I was really, I was delighted to put it in here. And um, you can go ahead and put it back together. The, uh, uh, I, I chose to do something that. If, if Mr. Wunderlich hears about it, he may not be delighted that I've chosen to sort of really play up this science fiction aspect of the work by, by placing it near these, uh, or flanking it with these Olin Orr pieces. Olin Orr is quite an interesting artist. I don't think he ever had a gallery, so these pieces were probably sold by him directly to uh, Mr. Hirschhorn. Um, he, He's a really interesting guy. He was in the collection of Josh Agamor and uh, John Yoko. He was a little bit on the celebrity scene. Um, and uh, these pieces have mercury in them, and uh, they're quite delightful to hold. We won't be doing that today, but when you um, when you move them around, you know, the mercury just goes zipping through them, and um, it's 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 a lot of fun. It's always fun to play with mercury. So maybe there's a uh, a connection, uh, you know, in a way between the idea of pollution and the city. I mean, it's sort of a, uh, you know, a, maybe a poetic way. There's a link between that and, and the battery piece as well. Um, let's see. Oh, I really want to talk about this artist over here, too. Um, these two uh, pieces are prints on latex, and they are by uh, Rachel Beforehand, and uh, and then done the print 
so then when the latex is let go, it causes this distortion. Uh, I'm uh, avidly a research intern trying to find out a little bit more. Uh, let's see. Uh, hopefully, you ain't never going to get interrupted by this piece over here, the Stephen Von Kuhn. And uh, you'll know when it starts. What, how much time is it? Uh, Ten uh, more minutes? Okay. okay. <laughs> um, this is by Wallace Berman, another one of my favorite artists. And uh, this is a, a piece that, you know, it's uh, got a lot of uh, sort of mystical and occult elements to it. The Hebrew letters, I'm not sure, I'd love to be correct if they actually say uh, words, but I, I believe that uh, that uh, Wallace Berman was was making the letters as sort of a form of you know meditation and as, as a meditational practice. I've also read recently that his choice of which letters to put next to each other was more of an aesthetic decision, and that, that was its primary driver. Um, the numbers, I cannot explain, except that, um, you know, again, they, I'm sure there are esoteric meanings that, um, that he's pursuing with that. Um, the chain, I uh, was quite curious about how many links the chain had, because you know everything's very meaningful in this. And uh, there are 26 links in the chain. Um, you know, 26 letters in the English alphabet. There's only 22 in the Hebrew alphabet, so I'm not sure if that's um, significant or not. But I, as an enigmatic object, as a cryptic object, and actually, it's a beautiful object, I'm, I'm a really big fan. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, let's see. What are the pieces of shows I've got here? Oh, somebody wants me to talk about R.J. Francisco. And uh, these, these pieces are, these are things that I found with Antel uh, in uh, storage. And I know very little about these artists. Uh, so I actually don't have very much to say about them other than, you know, uh, and this is great, because this is one of those things where you just have to go on. You don't have anyone's reputation. Um, you, you, you just have, uh, you don't have any information, you just have a piece. So it's, it's sort of a question of, if you like it, what do you get out of it? Um, I guess I like these because they seem to have sort of a West Coast hippie air to them, but I don't, I actually think they were made in New York, because uh, they, they were sold from the New York Gallery. Um, R.J. Francisco was Richard Francisco, so I did figure out gender, and uh, and then someone told me that he was a little bit associated with Richard Tuttle, but I'm not quite sure. But that certainly throws these um, casual materials into a new light. Um, Gianfranco Barrichello, this is everything I know about. You can even tell me more. I love him. Stephen Von Hoon. Is, uh, he's born in Los Angeles. Uh, I don't know where he went to Germany. Uh, he's uh, no longer with us. He uh, had a retrospective in Germany a while back. This is a kinetic object and a sound making object. Uh, I think he's very interested in the mystical aspects of sound and in the way that uh, you know, sound enters into human beings and can affect our moods and can, you know, this, and in a way it's um, you know, very ancient for. Uh, music to generate different feelings. Uh, so this piece is called Totem Tone, uh, probably for a couple of reasons. One, because it's geotentic, but also maybe uh, referring to ancient pieces of, ancient pieces of sound. Uh, and uh, any second now, it's going to interrupt us from the fact that it's a concert. Uh, for 
this would be a good time for Anne to help you with some questions. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we have a few minutes before this is going to happen, and then I think it's a three-minute composition, so it's worth just standing in silence and taking it in. It's really, really beautiful. But um, let's take some questions from you in the meantime. Anything about um, Evan's selection in this room, his work in the adjacent gallery, or the process of um, having him come here as a an artist curator, anything that you want to ask um, that's more related to the institution, I'm happy to respond to that. Um, so, it's on a timer, so it'll start playing on the hour. Yeah, normally it has a foot pedal that, that sets it off, but uh, yeah, but now we, we bypass that, so <laughs> we want it to last for the whole exhibition, you know. <laughs> yes? Um, a lot of to be from the 60s, 70s, was that? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it was, yes, it was, uh, it was my, I, you know, uh, Charles Long and I both share this interest in art history and in the sort of attrition rate of artists and, you know, what happens to them. And uh, we both love, uh, you know, artists in the 50s and 60s and 40s, but we, we sort of made a deal that he could have the 50s and uh, sort of, uh, you know, the, the metal objects and the cast objects and that I, I would be, you know, Get more. Uh, he led the hand the, the, the sort of '60s and um, the more psychedelic era. Uh, also, you know, this, for some reason, this is work that I'm, I'm very interested in. You know, usually, the, the '60s when we think about '60s art history, we think about either Warhol or Sullivan or I don't know, and that sort. But you know, there's a lot of other artists that may. You know, just there's so much for me that I. It, it really is interesting to me to think about the other ways people think. I, I think about all the hours. Mary Gowermaster spent in front of those pieces, and um, no, it's, to me, I, it's, it's a form of time travel. <laughs> it's really great. Uh, she was she was married to Carl Heinz Stockhausen, by the way. And um, so some of the pieces they have a lot of musical references and uh, references to feedback, which is um, you know he's making electronic music, so feedback is relevant to that. But also she's doing feedback loops with her own practice. You know, she's she's drawing her own drawings and making distortions. Distortions, so it's quite relevant to Stockhausen, and uh, they uh, they did like a three-day performance. Together. I would be very curious to find more information on that. Yes. Where is your studio? Where do you work? Oh, I work in Los Angeles. Uh -huh. I'm near downtown. And so you're uh, you're California, North Yeah, California. That's right. I'm wondering how much of the impact all of this is going to have on your work. Wow. It's like quite a big of it. A lot of impact, I think. I, I came out here in March, I believe, to uh, look at the collection, and um, at the same time, I had just opened my first New York show, so I was uh, working on that show, you know, all this time. I, I kept thinking about, well, this piece is kinetic work, I have kinetic work in the show. Um, well, I didn't mean just these works. Yeah. With the artists that you're showing with here. Oh, I was in effect. Uh, you, what impact? Oh, what impact does that have on me? Oh, well, but, you know, I guess it's wonderful to feel not so uh, alone in making it. <laughs> uh, for a while, sculpture was a real ghetto, you know? Um, it, it seems like uh, in the uh, late 80s and into the 90s, you would see three-dimensional objects, but they were generally more objects by um, default, you know? They were three-dimensional objects, but they weren't really speaking the language of, of uh, shape, form and rhythm and doing things, you know, in direct relationship to the body. Um, I, I think that, that um, there really was a time in the world where that, that wasn't done.
elements. So this reemergence of what we might call, you know, formless elements is really like it's it's great to be put in contact with other, you know other artists that have been doing this. It's great. Can you talk about the how you dug into the collection and imagine the well, my method for digging into the collection was I went through all my books and I marked every page that had an artist that I hadn't heard of that I was interested in. And then I um, took that list and entered it into this uh, search engine for the Hirshhorn because they have very good records on everything, but they don't yet have images of everything. And um, so then that that really shortened the list, you know, just to, and then uh, I sort of figured it out from there and I came up with my long list and came here and looked at the objects and how did you sell the idea to Hershel? Well, they already sort of were doing this, you know, because Baldessari uh, has got this, uh, uh, you know, this show, this wonderful show downstairs. And, and I don't know, I mean, I, I actually, when I heard I was in the um, larger, you know, the, in the Uncertainty show, I, I did uh, ask him, the, one of the first things I said, because I knew it was affiliated with an institution with a very deep collection. Um, if I could just pull out maybe one object or two, <laughs> she said, well, how would a whole gallery? So it's great. Is that what you're talking Yeah, you know, we've been institutionally wanting to invite people uh, other than the curators on staff to have access to the collection mm -hmm. and make selections.
um, we plugged that in when we were down in the storage space. It was just like, we couldn't believe it. <laughs> like, oh my god. Um, just to finish answering the previous question, um, I think, you know, so institutionally we are interested in bringing more people in to look at our collection with us, but also in terms of this exhibition, as I was organizing the Uncertainty of Objects and Ideas, a, a, a show of recent sculpture, um, it seems, and it is true, that the Hirshhorn collection was a really great uh, way to contextualize this more recent work. We have such an interesting and diverse collection of sculpture, specifically. And so I knew that I would be organizing collection galleries adjacent to the exhibition and that I would focus on sculpture. And then, of course, it occurred to me in, in my discussions with Evan early on that, in fact, it would be far more interesting to have some of the artists in the exhibition do that um, as well. And, uh, you know, I kind of zeroed in pretty quickly on Evan and Charles and Rachel. Um, I think because of what I knew about their way of thinking, because I knew how um, deeply enmeshed they were in the history of sculpture, and for the way that they positioned their works. Rachel's a really good example of somebody whose work in and of itself is about the display of artwork on some level. So she seemed like a very um, obvious choice in that sense. But I also know, um, as Evan pointed out, that he and Charles are so engaged with that history, uh, particularly 20th century, late 20th century sculpture, that. I knew that they would just have amazing insights into the collection, and I have to say that the experience of doing this with them has just been amazing. Just being in the storage space with them and digging things out, um, it was just so much fun. And I've learned a great deal about our collection through these artists, and I think it gives our audiences you know, enormous insight into some of the things that really have not been on view for some time, and also, I think, enormous insight into their work. I feel that I know Evan's work so much better um, by his choices from the collection. So that, that back and forth has been really meaningful, wonderful. Um, and he's a damn good curator, you know. <laughs> he keeps telling me about his next project, so I think um, he'll be doing more of this, hopefully. Do people have other questions for Evan? Peter Agostini makes me really want to try to work on my plaster technique. 
his, his work is that, by comparison to some of his peers, he's really, really loose. And um, but the results are you know, tremendous. So I, I um, yeah, that's influential. I couldn't touch him since uh, you know when we met, and this is so perfect. Uh, but uh, I think it's more a thing. I, I know that these things were on my mind and it's correlated to, to my own studio practice. But it's a, it's a little hard to point directly. Any more questions? Okay, thank you.